So I ask you to turn to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. We are in a series that we're titling Kingdom Through Crisis and Chaos. And we have seen already a tremendous amount of crises, a tremendous amount of chaos in the kingdom of God through the people of Israel. Chapters 13 and 14 are really a section. And in chapter 13, what we saw was Saul struggling to do what Samuel, the prophet of God, had commanded him to do. A big victory is won by Jonathan. Jonathan has been courageous in battle. And so with 1,000 men, he goes and defeats this battalion of Philistines. And so Saul says, let's do what Samuel commanded me to do. Let's go to Gilgal. Let's celebrate together. And let's wait for Samuel to come for him to offer a burnt offering and a peace offering. And then we'll have our marching orders from there. Well, they all go down and meet after this battle that's been won against the Philistines and all the troops are around and they're waiting on Samuel to show up and Samuel doesn't show up for a while and so instead of waiting further as if he's instructed as he was instructed to do Saul takes the offering and burns it himself and offers it up to the Lord something that he was not supposed to do and as soon as he does so Samuel comes walking into camp And he asks a question immediately to Saul. What is that question, church? What have you done? What have you done? And the rhetorical rhetorical answer to that question is, is I subverted the will of God. I was unwilling to be patient and wait on the timing of God. I decided I needed to do it because I was fearful I was fearful because the army was leaving me left and right. I was fearful because the Philistines were coming. I was fearful because I wanted the blessing of God and I had to do something, so I did it myself. And that was the beginning of the end of Saul's regime. Right there. And so Saul um, sees Samuel leave Gilgal. And when Samuel leaves Gilgal, the Word of God leaves Gilgal. The Spirit of God leaves Gilgal. The blessing of God leaves Gilgal. And so Saul is left to himself. And so what we saw in chapter 13 was really the paralysis of fear. I'm so afraid. I'm not, I don't know what to do, but I've got to do something. Instead of trusting God, I've got to do something. So we saw this paralysis in Saul. And then in chapter 14, verses 1 through 23, two weeks ago, we saw the battle of Michmash Pass. And what happens here is that Saul and the army that remains is, is fearful still. They're hiding in a cave. And there's one man in the Israelite army who is not fearful. And who is that man? Jonathan. Jonathan is the son of Saul, and he's not fearful because he believes in the Lord. He trusts in the Lord. He believes in the Word of God. He believes in the power of God. He believes in the Spirit of God. And he knows that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And so two weeks ago, we looked at the realization that nothing can hinder God. And what does Jonathan do? Jonathan goes up with his armor bearer, and attacks this Philistine garrison, and wipes out 20 guys. And the Israelite army catches wind of it, and they say, let's join Jonathan and his armor bearer. And we see that, that 
The Philistine army is confused. They're fearful. The earth is quaking. Apparently God is moving. And so the Israelite army, including Saul, come join this brave man, Jonathan, and his armor bearer. And they begin to just absolutely mosillate the Philistine army such that the Philistine army starts to depart. They start running away. And the Israelite army chases them. And if you look down at chapter 14, verse 23, what you see is that the Lord saved Israel that day. The Lord saved Israel that day. And now we look at verses 24 to 52, and we see the rest of the story. And look at 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed. Tell me, when were they hard-pressed? That day. This is the narrator's way of bringing a contrast from Jonathan's leadership when Jonathan says, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Let's go up in the power of the Lord. Let's go up in the spirit of the Lord. And let's go do what the Lord has called us to do. And now he's drawing a contrast that the Lord saved Israel through Jonathan's leadership on that day, and now Israel is underneath the oppressive, unbelieving, hard-hearted, callous leadership of King Saul on that same day. And so what does Saul do? Saul lays an oath on the people. And this is the oath. Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening. And I am avenged on my enemies. Now, an oath is something that was employed frequently among leaders in Israel. Many oaths that we see and many vows that we see in Scripture are are rash. They're they're, they're improper, but they're intended to be solemn. They're intended to be serious and they're intended to be completely binding. And Saul feels the liberty to bring this oath not only upon himself, but on all of Israel. And the oath normally has a promise and a curse about it. A promise and a curse. And so the the promise is essentially, we will not eat anything until evening and the Philistines are destroyed. The curse is, if we do, if anybody does, we see later that the, the, the curse is that we will die. That person will die if they eat before sundown or before the Philistines have been completely obliterated. That's the oath. Now, what we need to observe in the oath is absolutely critical to understanding the nature of Saul's thinking and the purposes of Saul's oath in itself. He says, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. You have to see that this curse and this oath is all about not God, but who? Saul. This is about Saul's glory. This is about Saul's reputation. This is about Saul's um, uh, perceived power among the people of Israel. He's lost some, some, some of his reputation. He's lost some of his prowess. He's lost some of the fear among the people because who do they see is the real leader in Israel? Jonathan. Jonathan is the real leader. If there's anybody who's fit to be king at this point, who is it? It's Jonathan. And so Saul says, I'm going to to take revenge on my enemies. What we don't see is the same 
What we don't see is the spirit of Jonathan that when they're in the same circumstances, just one chapter before, Jonathan says, nothing can hinder the Lord. I don't know what the Lord will do, but nothing can hinder him. I'm confident in him. Look, Saul has nothing about the Lord in this oath. It's all about himself. It's all about his reputation. It's all about him taking revenge on people who've hurt his feelings. And so what happens? The people respect his oath because he is the king. And so the text tells us none of the people had tasted food. Now they're hard pressed. Verse 24 says they're hard pressed. That means they're exhausted. They're famished. They're struggling. Folks, I want you to know they've been fighting in hand-to-hand combat all day. And it's about probably middle of the day at this point. And they've been doing a good job. And and they are fighting hard. And no doubt that they are going to begin to get on the verge of dehydration and undernourishment and, and just being completely famished at this point. But they say, okay, whatever the king has said. And so verse 25 says, when all the people came to the forest, behold, there's honey on the ground. Wow. And when the people enter the forest, they, they say, well, wait a minute, we can't, we can't touch the honey because of the oath. We can't touch it, even though it looks good. We know it'll taste good. We can't touch it because Saul has us under this oath. Now, Jonathan, who had been fighting and was away at the time, he had not heard the oath. He wasn't aware of it. And Jonathan, like you and I, has some common sense about him. So when he goes into the forest, he sees this honeycomb. And he sees the honey dropping off of the honeycomb. And he's like, man, this is going to make us all feel better. This is all going to give us the nourishment that we need to keep fighting. And so he takes his staff and he dips it into the honey and he puts his hand to the staff and then he licks it. And as soon as he licks it, what happens to Jonathan is the same thing that happened to you and I if we were struggling. His eyes get bright. That tastes really good. It gives him energy. It gives him the nourishment. It it, it obviously changes his physical countenance after somebody's been probably fighting for at least six hours in hand-to-hand combat. But as soon as he does so, one of the men in the Philistine army who had heard the oath says, your dad put an oath on us that says, cursed is the man who eats anything this day until the Philistines are struck down or it becomes evening. Now, at this point, Jonathan is like, okay, well, this is the what I think about this. Look down at verse 29. He says, first of all, my dad has troubled the land. He's brought distress on the land. This is not a wise oath. See how my eyes have become bright because I taste a little of this honey? How much better, how much greater... How much more nourishing would it be if the people would eat freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they have found? For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. In other words, we could have gone further, we could have gone harder, and we could have accomplished more if we were being nourished along the way. And so they continue in battle. And verse 31 says that they strike down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ijalon, and the people are very faint. I want you to know that Michmash is just, you know, just on the northwest corner of where uh, Geba is, where uh, Saul and those guys are from, and 12 miles away is Ijalon, 12 miles. 
Now think of it in these terms, guys. 12 miles, I know, is like from here to, to North Anniston. But, but for them, they've got to run all of that territory. Not only are they running it, they're fighting along the way. And not, only, and not only that, it is rough terrain. It's hills, mountains, rocks, caves. This is a very difficult run. This is a very difficult deal. And so for 12 miles, they're running all the way to Ijalon. And Ijalon is right on the border of the Philistine territory, but it's not in the border of the Philistines. And so what the narrator is trying to tell us is, is that they didn't quite have enough strength. They didn't have quite enough power. They didn't have enough oomph to get the Philistines all the way over in their territory. And so they did a good job and they did a, and they did an excellent job of getting them out, but they did not complete the task. And so the people are very faint. They are spent. They are exhausted. They're dehydrated. And so as soon as they, as they sh- get them all the way to Ijalon, what happens? They pounce. They jump on the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, the calves. And what do they do? They slaughter them on the ground. And the people eat with the blood. Now, for those of you who have studied this passage prior to today and leading up to today, you realize that what they've done is in direct violation of the Lord's law. Because what must Israel do any time they kill an animal in order to eat it? Drain the blood. Because this is a Levitical truth. If you read the book of Leviticus, you see it over and over. You see this phrase, the life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. In other words, God is the giver of life. We recognize it. He gives us life. And so we're going to drain the blood out of the animal who gives life as an offering to the God who, is, who has granted it. Life is found in the blood. This is, an, this is a recognition of God's greatness, His authority, and His life-giving power. Life is in the blood. We're going to give the blood back to the Lord as an offering unto Him. That's God's command. And yet, they're so hungry, they're so famished, they're so exhausted, they, they do away with God's command and they kill the animal on the ground and cook it and begin to eat it. Now listen, this is their fault, but more than their fault, whose fault is it really? It's Saul's fault. Because he puts on them something that he never should have put on them. He put a weight and a burden upon them that a leader should never put on his people. And so he's really at fault at the root, and then they are just kind of like the shrapnel. They catch the shrapnel that, that, that happens. And so, and so someone tells Saul, the people are sinning, Saul. They're eating, they're eating the blood. And so Saul says, man, you've dealt treacherously. You've dealt deceitfully. You, you, you've dealt wrongly. This is a terrible thing you have done. So bring a stone over here to me. Disperse among yourselves to the people and say, let every man bring his ox, his sheep, and slaughter them here and eat. And don't sin uh, against the Lord by eating with the blood. In other words, you guys have done it all wrong. Let's do it right. We'll, We'll get an altar. We'll get stone. We'll drain the blood. We'll cook the animals, and then we'll eat. And so he blames them, but he offers the solution for what they can do. And so every one of the people bring out their ox with them, and they slaughter them there. And Saul builds this altar, and it was the first altar that he built to Yahweh. And so as soon as they finish this whole process of draining the blood, eating the meat, 
then Saul says, let's go down after the Philistines and let's utterly destroy them. Let's knock them to their knees. Let's kick them while they're down. Let's finish the job. And notice, he's not prayed. He's not sought the Lord's favor. He doesn't even use the Lord's name in this statement, unlike his son Jonathan, who says nothing can hinder the Lord. We will follow the Lord's plan. He doesn't do anything. And, and this is what the people say. They, they, they don't say, yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah, they don't say, King, we'll, we're with you all the way. They say, do whatever seems good to you. In other words, they're saying, you're the king, we're your people, we've got to follow you. And so the priest, this priest that, that Saul has acquired, says, wait a minute, Saul, let's draw near to God here. Let's get close to God. I think it's ironic, or just a little bit interesting, that he doesn't use the name Yahweh here. He uses that general term for God. Let's draw near to God. In other words, you got this priest, and he knows that my job is to kind of bring God into the picture, but I don't really know Yahweh that well. We're not on great terms, but we need to, we need to do something that might appease the Lord, that might please Him. It is a good idea. And so Saul immediately inquires of God, and he asks two questions. Look at verse 37. The two questions that Saul asks are, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Like, I've already said we should. I've got this plan that we should, but shall I go down? And, and God, will you give them into the hand of Israel? I need to know those two things. Should I go down? And if I do, will you give them into our hand? Will we have victory? And Saul waits for the answer. And God answers him with silence. God, should we go? And if we go, are you going to give us victory? God, really? Should we go? And and if we go, are you going to give us victory? He's not going to answer. Okay, somebody must have sinned in the camp. It's got to be somebody's fault that God is not answering my prayers. He's not saying anything to me. So somebody's at fault. And I'm going to get to the bottom of this. So come here, all you leaders of the people. Know and see how this sin has arisen today. I've got to know. So as the Lord lives who saves Israel, even though it might be in my own son, Jonathan, I don't know who it's in, but even if it's in my own son, that person who has sinned shall surely die. Now, nobody says anything at that point. And so he says to every one of the Israelites, all of the troops, he says, you shall be on one side and I and my son, Jonathan, will be on the other side. And the people say, again, do whatever seems good to you, Saul. And therefore Saul says, O Lord God of Israel, verse 41, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thuman. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. And then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Now, some of us have questions about what exactly is going on here. Well, let me just bring, let me bring a contemporary illustration of what's going on. Essentially, it's a coin toss. All right. We don't know a lot about Urim and Thummim, but what we do know is it's kind of like a token. It's kind of like a coin that the high priest kept in his, in his breast piece. And it was used to understand the will of God. And so he would bring out the Urim and the Thummim. It's almost like heads and tails. 
And whoever it falls on, that's how you know that the will of God is being done. And that's what happens here. And so the, the, the one that falls on Jonathan and his son say, okay, they're the ones at guilt. And then the, the, the lot is cast, and it's kind of a separate way to do this. It's, just, it's the same thing, but a different way, and it falls on Jonathan. So that Saul looks at his son Jonathan and says, just like Samuel did to Saul, a couple of chapters ago, he says, what have you done, Jonathan? And Jonathan says, I love this. You're not going to believe this. Like, I know it is a dastardly act. But I ate a little honey. Like, you can just see that, you know, just as the honey was dripping off the tree, the sarcasm is dripping off of Jonathan's mouth right now. He says, I taste a little honey. With the tip of the staff that was in my hand. I tell you what, I tell you what, here I am. I will die. I will die. Now, Jonathan is sarcastically acknowledging the stupidity of Saul's oath. Okay? But at the very same time, he's being honest about what he did. Two things he's courageous. And when somebody who knows the Lord and has the power of the Spirit of God in them, they have no fear to tell the truth because they know that their their life is in God's hands. And their identity is in God Himself. Jonathan is not concerned about his own power or his own glory or his own kingdom because he realizes that the kingdom that he serves is not his kingdom. It's God's kingdom. And so if God wants to take him out of this life, then so be it. He's fine with that. Saul, on the other hand, is different. And children, I just want to take this opportunity right now. If you won't mind, if you're a child, if you just look up here. Jonathan told the truth. He spoke the truth. And even though the circumstances were going to be unfavorable to him in telling the truth, he still spoke the truth because he knew that that would honor God. And kids, I want you to know that every single day you have an opportunity to speak truth or speak lies. Every day, multiple times a day. And every single time that you have that opportunity, you're building your character. So if you speak the truth, you're building a character with great integrity. But if you get in a habit of speaking lies, you're building a character that is fallacious. It is bad. It's wrong. It's a bad character. And today, it doesn't matter whether you're 7 or 9 or 11, you're becoming the person that you'll be when you're 20 and when you're 30. And when you're 50. And so I would just encourage you, be like Jonathan. Speak the truth. Even if you've done something wrong, tell the truth. Because your life is in God's hands. And even though you might have to pay difficult consequences because of speaking the truth, you will be better for it in the end. And you don't want to get away with something now. Slide by because you skirt the truth, but at the end face the judgment of God on that final day. You would rather tell the truth now, build a character of integrity, and then when you face the Lord in the end, He's able to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome to the kingdom. So kids, I just encourage you, speak the truth no matter how bad it hurts. Now, let's look back down at the the text. Saul says, God do so to me and more also, Jonathan, you're my son. Jonathan, I I love you so much. Jonathan, you're precious to me. But you shall surely die because you ate some honey. 
Even though you didn't know about my oath. Even though my oath is foolish. Even though my oath is ridiculous. And even though you are completely unaware of it, you shall surely die. Why? Saul, even though he would never say this with his lips, it's because it's about my glory, it's about my reputation, it's about my esteem, and you have messed that all up, and so you're going to die. You're going to pay for this. You see the, the selfishness coming out of Saul. And so the people rise up. Because I will tell you, that's something about people who, who love God and who want to honor God with their lives. They ultimately can recognize selfishness. They can ultimately recognize self-centeredness, and that's exactly what Israel notices. And so what do they say when they hear their king get all over Jonathan in that way and declare that he's going to die? They say, shall Jonathan die? The one who's worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. Absolutely not. It's almost like they're saying that's heresy. There's no way that's going to happen. As the Lord lives, that is, as the Lord is powerful, as the Lord reigns over our kingdom, as the Lord is the true authority, there is no way one hair of His head will fall to the ground because He is the one who has worked with God this day. They are standing for what is right. They are standing for what is true. They were standing for what is best. And so the people ransomed Jonathan so that he does not die. This word ransom, it it literally means to buy back. It means to redeem. But here, it is their standing up for what is right and true and good and holy and pure. And in standing against Saul, who is standing against everything that is right and good and holy and true and pure, they are ransoming him in that moment. They're buying him back. They will not have Jonathan's blood on their hands. And so Saul goes up from, that is, away from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines go to their own place. You see, with all of the people of Israel standing with the Lord and with Jonathan and against Saul, Saul is embarrassed. Saul doesn't know what to do. And so he just throws up his hands and says, well, I guess that's it. And he walks back to his camp. Now, the story doesn't end there. It immediately goes into an account of Saul's kingship. And let's just look at it. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side. Against Moab. Against the Ammonites. Against Edom. Against the kings of Zobah. Against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, what did he do? He routed them. He defeated them. He did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plunder them. And then here's his family. And he he has Jonathan and Ishvi and Malkishua as sons. His two daughters are Merab and Michael. The name of his wife was Ahinoam, who's the daughter of Ahimaaz. The name of the commander of his army is Abner, who's the son of Ner. He's got Kish, the the father of Saul. Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. And in the days of Saul, there was hard fighting against the Philistines. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Church, if you're like me, you're asking the question, why is that there? Why, Why at that point in the story? Because we know that chapter 15 is about to happen, and we know what happens in 15, and it is not good. It is not good on Saul's behalf. 
So you're saying, we learn all these negative things about this King Saul, and then all of a sudden, we see all of his accomplishments. He's, he's put in a good light. There's a couple things that's going on here, church, that you need to listen to, that you need to understand. First of all, Scripture is honest. Like, Saul did defeat all of those, all of those people and those armies. He did fight valiantly. Listen, even though he's not very good at worship, he is good at war. And he does a good job of fighting in battle. And the Scripture is going to present the judgment of history on that. He's being honest about that. The second thing that is going on is that this is the beginning of the end for Saul. It's practically over for him. And so this is kind of like, okay, this was the nature of Saul's ministry and his kingship and his authority because we know that this is, this is it for him as far as God's blessing. But I think there's a third thing that's very important for mine in your life that's going on here. And that is this. Is that Saul accomplished a lot on the outside. He was a king with authority, and he exercised his authority, and he defeated the armies around him. He was valiant in battle. He was courageous. He could organize a group of men, and he could keep all of the enemies at bay. Everything looked good about him on the outside. But what matters is what's on the inside. And church, I want to tell you something about our lives. Everything can look good about us on the outside. We can have a lot of success. We can make a lot of money. We can do a lot of things. But if our hearts aren't right with God, it's meaningless. It's useless. It's worthless. And I will say this. Saul's leadership was worthless because even though it looked great on the outside, on the inside, he did not love God, he did not honor God, and he did not lead people toward the glory of God. It begs us to ask the question, what does my life look on the out, does it look like on the outside? What is the reality, though, on the inside? And so, Isaiah, if you'll put up on the screen two weeks ago, big idea. In verses 1 through 23, this is the, essentially the equation that we saw from Jonathan. Faith in God's power and moving in God's direction produces the saving of God's people. We saw that Jonathan had faith in the power of the Lord. We saw that he moved in the direction of the Lord even though it was two men versus an army. We said that if you've got God on your side, you're always in the majority. And so what happened? God's people are saved. We see humble trust in the power of God, and we see God saving people. What we want to see today in verses 24 through 52, next slide, unbelief. That is, a lack of faith in God's power, a lack of faith in God's presence, a lack of faith in God's purity, plus a self-centered agenda. Not a God-centered agenda, not a God-glorifying agenda, but a self-centered agenda produces foolish decisions, callous leadership, and superficial success. Now, you just leave the slide up there, so I want us to talk about it. What is unbelief? What is unbelief? Unbelief is a distrust in the promises, the provisions in the presence of God. It is a disbelief in the promises of God. 
the provisions of God, and even the person of God Himself. That's what, that's what disbelief is. That is that's what unbelief is. And church, I think the first thing that we should do is we need to realize that there's a little bit of Saul in us. There's a little bit of Saul in which we disbelieve God. We disbelieve either the promises that He's made. Promises like, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Promises like, I'll always give you what you need. Promises that says, you know, um, you have my spirit. You are sealed with my spirit. You are, you are mine, the Scripture says. We, we, we are, we're tempted to disbelieve the promises of God. We're, dis, we're tempted to disbelieve the provisions of God. Some of us are in situations in our lives that we would really rather not be in. Some of us have illness, sickness. Some of us have difficult home situations. Some of us have difficult job situations. And what we're tempted to do in our circumstances is disbelieve God's provisions are right for us. To disbelieve that God's provisions are best for us. We're tempted to say, you know what, I think God is really good in this area of my life. I think He's doing a great job with my family. But over here, over here, it's just really, He's not doing a very good job. Because if He, if he was doing a good job, it would look differently right here. It would be different. My life would be different. And so at that point, guys, even though we would never say that out loud, at that point where we say God would be doing a better job if He really loved me, if He provided for me right here, that's where we disbelieve God. That's where we don't believe Him. That's where we don't have faith in Him. That's where we don't trust Him. And when we don't trust Him and we don't have faith in Him, what do you and I want to do? What do we want to do with this circumstance? Tell me. We want to take control of it. We want to do it. If God's not going to do it, then we're going to do it. And who does that sound like from chapter 13? Saul. Church, we need to understand that even in those hard-to-deal-with, hard-to-swallow circumstances, that God is still good and He's still God. So let's trust Him there if we want to be more like Jonathan and less like Saul. If we want to know the blessing of God and not the curse of God. And so that's, that's distrust. Now, the, the tragedy of unbelief is that it forfeits the presence and power of God even though it can appear very successful and blessed on the outside. I will. The tragedy of unbelief is that it forfeits the presence and power of God even though it can appear very successful and blessed on the outside. I kind of explain it a little bit. The tragedy of unbelief is that you can look so pure on the outside, but be so corrupt on the inside. You can look so successful on the outside, but be such a failure on the inside. You can look like a strong leader on the outside, but you can be such a burden to the people of God that you lead. Now, church, I think that you and I, you and I would both agree that there are organizations and even churches that look really good on the outside. Man, their, their signs look good. Their people are really pretty. Their music is awesome. They've got a, a laser light show. I mean, everything looks really good on the outside. Everything, they never have microphone issues. 
you know, none, none of that, okay? Yeah, parking lot full. Yeah, that's right. Everything is pristine. You and I would agree, though, that there are some churches that everything looks good on the inside, but the Spirit of God is not on the inside. And why is that? It's because in those critical parts of their life, their family, their marriage, their parenting, their work, their sin problems, they don't believe God. Everything looks great on the outside. It all looks beautiful. It all looks wonderful. But on the inside, they're not trusting God in the place that it matters. And my prayer this week is that Redeemer Church will be a church that trusts God in the places that it matters. Hey, look, any, any of us can trust God in the areas where we're doing really good. Any of us can trust God in the areas where it seems like we've got a, a pattern here of success. Where it really matters is when we trust God in the areas where we feel like we're on the edge of a cliff and about to fall off, and we say, God, if you don't come through, I don't have any idea what I'm going to do. Right. That's where it matters. And so, unbelief is the first equation to, to produce in the kinds of things that we see in Saul. And then, self-centeredness. Self-centeredness is rejecting the centrality of God. It's rejecting the centrality of God and placing yourself in the center of the universe. Please don't say in your heart that I'm immune to that. I feel very confident that none of us are immune to self-centeredness. If you're self-centered... You don't pursue the glory of God. You pursue the glory of who? Yourself. Yourself. You don't pursue people's deepest joy. Instead, you use people, you use people to promote your own happiness. Now that's critical. Like our mission is to pursue the glory of God and the joy of all people. But if you're self-centered, you're pursuing the glory of self and you're trying to manipulate people and use people to gain your own happiness. Listen, that is a common human ploy. How can I use this group of people to advance my own agenda? How can I use this friendship to advance my own reputation? How can I advance this business partnership in order to advance my own glory and my own success? We all have it in us. And, and that's self-centeredness. If you're self-centered, you don't spend time in prayer with God because you know that God is not you-centered. God is who-centered? God-centered. God is God-centered. And so you don't spend time in prayer with Him because you know that He's God-centered and you're self-centered and therefore you and God have two competing agendas. Your agenda is yourself. God's agenda is god And so you know that if you go to God, God's going to change your what? Your agenda. And so you don't go to Him in prayer. And so you spend a life of prayerlessness. Oh, you might shoot up a a 30-second prayer here or there. You might say a couple things for your your kids or your, your uncle who's struggling. But you know that that doesn't really change things about your heart. That doesn't change things about your life and your circumstances. That only tries to help the people that you love the most. And by the way, you don't want your uncle to die. And you don't want your kids to have trouble. Because that's going to be an imposition to you. You see how me centered that can be. So you don't, you don't serve people just to serve them. You secretly ask the question, what's in it for me? Yeah. 
How can I work this situation for my glory? How can I manipulate this circumstance so that my life is easier, my life is more comfortable, and my life is more glorious? That's what self-centeredness is. Unbelief is a distrust in the promises, the provisions, and the person of God. And self-centeredness is a rejection of the centrality of God in all things and embracing the centrality of you in all things. And what does it produce? It produces folly. It, it produces foolish decisions. You know, um, I had to take an evaluation of decisions that I have made in my life this week as I was going through this text, you don't, have, you don't have to raise your hand, but let me ask you this question. Have you ever made a foolish decision? I want you to think right now. Why don't you just think for a moment? What, what's, a, what's a foolish decision that I can remember? I would be pretty confident to say that whatever that decision was, it either involved unbelief or self-centeredness, and possibly both. You either didn't believe and trust in the promises and provisions of God, or you made the decision because you wanted your life to be easier or more glorious, or you wanted to advance an agenda that was outside of the agenda of God. Folly is the skill to defectively navigate all of life not toward God's glory, but whose glory? Yeah, when we think of folly, when we think of fools, we oftentimes in our mind think, oh, the person's ignorant, that person has no idea what they're doing, they're, they're unintelligent. That's not what folly is according to the Bible. Folly is the skill to defectively navigate all of life, not toward God's glory, but your own. And so that's exactly what happened with Saul, and that's what can happen with us. Um, unbelief plus self-centeredness equals callous leadership. As a leader myself, I looked at that really long this week. Callous leadership pursues self-glory rather than God's glory and people's joy. And that's what we see in Saul throughout this text. Saul is not concerned that the people are famished. Saul is not the concerned that the people are hard-pressed. Saul is not celebrating their, their, their courage. Saul is not celebrating the courage of his son. Saul is not concerned about the glory of God in all of this. Saul is primarily concerned about pushing his agenda at the expense of the good and the benefit and the health of the people that he leads, which is supposed to be the people that he serves. And so his unbelief and his self-centeredness has produced a callous leadership such that the people whom he lead don't say, oh, we love you, Saul. We'll follow you wherever you go. The people finally say, Kent, you're the king. Do whatever you say. Do whatever you think's good. They have no, no allegiance to their leader because they, their leader is unbelieving and self-centered. And then unbelief plus self-centeredness equals superficial success. Superficial success is success that looks good on the outside, but has no spiritual value whatsoever. That's Saul. Saul fought valiantly. He was courageous. He, he, he destroyed the armies of a lot of people who were encroaching on Israel. Bravo, Saul. But at the end of the day, God did not count any of it of any spiritual worth because you did not love Him. Superficial success. Alright, so what, what, what we want to do right now, if you've still got your pens out, 
I want you, you can use those. If you don't have your pen, just get in a place where you can meditate on your own life. Because this is what I want us to do. I want us to look at unbelief. I want us to look at self-centeredness in a very personal, a very individual way. I want you right now, under the heading of unbelief, I want you to identify areas of your life where you don't fully trust God. I'll give you some examples to kind of get you kick-started. Is it finances? Is it your marriage? Is it a lack of a marriage? Is it parenting? Is it your job? Is it aging? Is it your appearance? What is it? Identify the areas of your life where you are not fully trusting in God. And right now, why don't you ask God to root out that unbelief by showing you His power. Now, if some of you are struggling with getting your needs met, remember Jesus says, do not worry. If God so clothes the grass of the field, if He so feeds the birds of the air, how much more will He not care for you and meet your needs? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Right now, church, trust in God. Trust in Him. Cling to Him right now. Call on Him. If you're in your seat right now and you just want to silently call on the Lord in the area of your distrust, call on Him. Start trusting God right now. Start with the little things and work toward the big things. And just the second thing I want you to do is I want you to identify an area or areas of your life where you're self-centered. Where the reality is, it's just all about you. It's all about you. It's your time, it's your money, it's your body, it's your life, it's your recognition. What is it for you? What is it that it's just all about you? It's just you, you, you. Don't mess with my time. Don't mess with my resources. Don't mess with my looks. Don't mess with my body. Don't mess with my life. This is my life. Right now, right now, ask God to help you see the emptiness of self-glory and the fullness of God's glory. John Piper has said a billion times now, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. You choose self-centeredness because you want satisfaction. That's what you want. I don't care whether you're 50 or 10 or 20. I don't care whether you're married or single, whether you're a grandfather, a grandmother, or a grandchild. Every one of you wants satisfaction. 
Satisfaction is good. Pleasure is good. A life that is full and full of joy and happiness is good. This is the lie that you believe, though. You believe that you've got to be self-centered in order to get it. You believe it's got to be all about you for you to be happy. The Scripture would say, no, that God is most glorified when you are most satisfied in Him, and when you're most satisfied in Him, you're as satisfied as you possibly can be. But you and I, we're children of Adam and Eve. And we believe the same things that the serpent told Adam and Eve. That you'll be more happy, and you'll be better, and you'll be more satisfied if you eat of that tree. That's what we believe. It doesn't matter whether you're a leader in this church, or whether you're a little child, every one of us, every day, are tempted to believe the lie. And I'm church, I'm just saying, don't believe the lie. At the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. Delight is found at His throne. Find your satisfaction and your joy and your pleasure in Him. Because if you follow human kings like Saul, if you follow human presidents or governors or or human leaders or even pastors then you will be let down and your satisfaction will run dry. But if you look to the great King, the glorious King Jesus, who is willing to live for you and die for you, who is willing to be resurrected from the dead, He is worth living for and you can find a deep well of satisfaction at His throne. He's the great King. Follow Him and trust in Him today. Let's let this first song be a time of meditation. If you want to repent of your unbelief, if you want to repent of your self-centeredness, let's use the prayer benches right now and let's repent and ask the good King to come to us and reign over us and reign supreme that we might know deep satisfaction. So what were, the, what were the symptoms and the evidences of Saul's unbelief and self-centeredness? They were going about his own way without consulting the wisdom of God. Not seeking the counsel of God's people. Not humbling himself before the Lord of glory. And seeking the Word of God. He had to have people to remind him to do that. He had to have people to say, hey, wait a minute, stop. What are we doing here? And it's not so different with us, folks. Our unbelief is, is, is evidenced by our lack of prayerfulness, our, our lack of consulting the wisdom of God, our lack of gathering with the people of God, our lack of reading the Word of God. It's really not all that complex. But what we do... As we say, you know what, I've just, I'm busy, I've got this and i got that, and really I just don't have time for other people, I don't have time to read God's Word, I don't have time for family worship, I don't have time for these things. And when you don't have time for the things of God and the person of God, then you don't have time for God. And we don't have time for God, you don't believe Him. Right. And it's about you, yeah. and not about Him. Yeah. Let's repent today, and let's move toward God as Jonathan did, that we might know His blessing.